Welcome to Critical Friends, the Strange Horizons SFF Criticism Podcast. I'm Aisha Subramanian. I'm Dan Hartland. And I'm Maureen Kincaid-Speller. In every episode of Critical Friends, we'll be talking about SFF criticism, what it is, why we do it, how it's going. In this episode, we'll be looking at the question of trust. What role does it play in criticism and how is it built or lost? That means we'll be thinking about the relationship between the reader and critic, the text and the review, and asking what makes a piece of criticism worth paying attention to. Okay, so maybe we can start with some concrete examples. Which critics do we pay attention to and why? When I was thinking about this, I realised that an awful lot of the critics, particularly the SFF critics that I trust, already write for the reviews department of Strange Horizons, which is a strange coincidence. I mean, it's it's an odd thing. Um, And I kind of, I don't know how we feel. I kind of think that I have a policy here of, of not, mentioning names because <laughs> if if i mention one of our reviewers the rest of them are going to get so cross they're such a highly strong group of people <laughs> um so so i was wondering about this why i trust rather than who and that led me to a, a name as an example from outside of sff and I, I'll read anything, for example, that Jacqueline Rose writes. And I wondered why. And I thought it was because, and this is personal, obviously, we'll all trust different critics for different reasons. And it struck me that one of the reasons I will read anything Rose writes is because she is aware of context, willing to reread the context and, and bring in different intersectionalities and all that stuff. Um, but also alive to the text itself. So she, her approach is holistic in that sense. I suppose it doesn't hurt that she's a little bit iconoclastic too. Um, but she doesn't write about SFF, so I can't talk about Jacqueline Rose. I don't see why you can't talk about her. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we need to necessarily... Um, obviously, yes, we are, as SFF... Um, reviews, editors and critics, we're interested in SFF criticism, but it is a subset of criticism, which is a thing we care about. Mm. I think I'm going to throw something in. I mean, I read a lot of things like New York Review of Books, uh, TLS, um, for my sins, the London Review of Books, which is the one I like least. Um, And there's various authors, writers in there. In, in those magazines. Uh, Fintan O'Toole is a reviewer. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mm. really, you know, I mean, I, I don't care what he's writing about, but nine times out of ten, it will be interesting, simply as a exercise to seeing what he does with a book and a topic, um, and because he writes so beautifully. I think we've noted before I have certain bet noir, um, not looking at you, Andrew O'Hagan, but okay, I'm looking at you, Andrew O'Hagan. Um, it's again, I mean, I read Andrew O'Hagan because it's kind of like driving past a road accident. What is he going to do this time? And how horrifying is it going to be when he does it? Now, he's a perfectly blameless writer, but the 
point is that he's not really writing book reviews. He's reading a book and thinking about how it intersects with his life. And then he writes a sort of little memoir um, in which he, he, he slides in a few mentions of the book. And it drives me to distraction. And yet I keep going back to see what he's done this time. Uh, his um, The worst one uh, was I... A review of a book about the colony room in Soho, you know, and all the people flitting in and out of that. And it was basically out of four uh, full page columns. Three and a half of him was lamenting the fact he was never at the colony room in its heyday. And in the last half column, he mentioned the book, uh, which was nice. I appreciated the fact. But this was reviewing as a. I don't really even know how to describe it, actually, other than infuriating. But so I end up, you know, you put Andrew O'Hagan next to Fintan O'Toole. I know exactly what I'm going to get from both of them. And I know that in the case of Andrew O'Hagan, I'm not going to be very happy. Whereas, you know, Fintan O'Toole will expand my horizons in various ways. Well, those are both a form of trust in a way, though, aren't they? It's, mm. You know that you're going to get a certain experience and... Um, in one case, you know that you're not going to like that experience, but <laughs> you, but it's still you you can rely on its consistency. This is a good point. I mean, it's like watching um, Peter Bradshaw review um, genre uh, films in, in The Guardian. You know, he's given it a two. It's going to be fantastic. I'm going to love it. He's given it a five. Oh my god! I mean, it's actually it's a. Uh, I remember there's a friend of um, Paul Kincaid's. Uh, he once said to Paul, I know that if you write uh, approvingly of a book, I'm going to hate it. Whereas I know that if you hate a book, I'm really going to enjoy it. And it was completely consistent, apparently. Yeah, whatever whatever Paul disliked, he was going to enjoy. And he read Paul's reviews in precisely that way. So he was obviously getting something of value out of them, but it just seemed to me to be rather odd. <laughs> So is part of developing trust, I mean, it's, I think Aisha's right, that even trusting a reviewer to be wrong is a kind of trust. Mm. So maybe we talk about relationship instead. Developing a relationship with a reviewer is about the consistency of that reviewer. Yeah, it's actually exactly what I was about to say. It, 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 it isn't so much trust as establishing a relationship. Um, I always enjoy reading Gary Wolf's reviews in Locus. Um, I always feel that he's very kind. You know, he's, he's, he's a very generous reviewer. But I like the fact that he can draw on um, intelligently on sort of many years of reading. And he's a brilliant contextualizer. And it was quite a long time when I was, I was reading one of the old um, collections that Beckon Press point, uh, put out of his uh, his essays uh, from Locus. And I'd been sort of reading this all day and I suddenly realised that once you actually understood the language of Gary Wolfe reviewing, that there were some quite pointed little comments scattered you know, throughout the reviews. But if you, sort of, if you weren't paying attention, the reviews were very pleasant. But if you actually started you know, digging into them, and you read a lot of them. There was something else going on underneath as well. But it was, um, I just could say something about the ways in which certain uh, journals encourage their people to write. But that's another issue, perhaps. But yeah, there, there was there was the critical component to the review that I would look for, but it, it was not immediately obvious. It's interesting that you mentioned the the organ, the 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 venue in which a 
a review appears. And I, I was really interested in you talking about the LRB because I kind of agree. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that paper right now. And I do think that, yeah, the, the way that magazines encourage their, or any venue encourages their reviewers to write is important. But the danger perhaps of emphasising consistency in a reviewer's oeuvre uh, is, uh, thank you, is that you begin to expect or they begin to think you expect a performance. And mm. I'm thinking of people like Adam Mars-Jones, who, you know, I mean, every piece is, how can Adam Mars-Jones fill it this book? Because that's what <laughs> yeah. Mars-Jones has come to be known for. And mm. there are diminishing returns there. Um, I know that Erin Horakova, who has written for Strange Horizons quite a lot, so this is us plugging one of our own people again. Um, but Erin has complained about the fact that she sometimes feels like she's being called upon to perform a sort of amusing anger. And that's something that, when she does, is hilarious. I, I very much enjoy that. But it's not what is valuable about her work. And it, it's a bit of a shame when um, that becomes something that, that readers are looking for or that readers are expecting from you. So how do we avoid that? And when I say we, perhaps I am meaning Strange Horizons reviews. How do we, whilst hoping that our reviewers have a consistency which helps them develop a relationship with readers, how do we prevent each voice just becoming a performance? How does any paper or journal or magazine or whatever do that? How does any reviewer do that? So all the names that we've been referring to so far are people who who have these um, quite long, quite established careers. Um, and that kind of expectation is built up over that time. And that's... Um, in some cases, great. In some cases, maybe not so great. Um, whereas when we're working with a very broad range of reviewers in the first place, where we can just, um, we, we can keep holding reviewers to account as far as the actual text is concerned. Mm. So that the text is still um, the priority, at, le at least at some level. Um wondering if you're in one of those situations um i mean to take something like the the lrb again um where you have your favored reviewers and they are so favored you effectively either they don't really like to be edited or you don't want to edit them anymore whereas i think one of the things that we do certainly with strange horizons and i value it in anywhere else that does it um we're prepared to engage at the level of editing you know and have that dialogue with the reviewer you know does this work have you thought about this this is very nice not so sure this is you know does what you think it's going to do so there's that actually that 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 process that editorial process is going on yeah the invisible hand of the editor mm. yeah yes so there are two lines of 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 thought here that were we're sort of juggling we're talking about the relationship between the critic and the reader but there's a mediating thing in the middle there isn't there unless the critic is a blogger and we spoke in the last episode about quote-unquote the demise of blogs 
Um, it there, there can be, and we could talk about that perhaps, like in a really immediate relationship between a critic and a reader. But in a lot of situations, there isn't. There's a there's a, this invisible editor person who is there to what? I mean, one of the things I often joke about you know, in my my other daytime editing job you know, as a, as a an editor, it's my job to save the author from themselves. Um, and I think, you know, yeah, it's very amusing of me, but at the same time, I think there's a certain truth in that because um, if you're close to something, there are certain things you just don't see. Reasonably experienced reviewers are actually very good at spotting this and others are so intensely engaged with the text that they do find it difficult to step back. And you know, on the whole, they do seem to be grateful for um, an editor's... <laughs> I'm going to use the word intervention, but I don't mean it in a very uh, heavy-handed kind of way. You know, just maybe the editor's engagement in the text as well, just to actually sort of give them that extra space you know, to sort of take a step back and look at what they're doing. And it's like going around the museum with a friend or the art gallery with a friend and looking at things. Once, once two people are having a conversation, you can see... Uh, a particular work of art in a very different way as a result of the exchange. And I think the same you know, pertains to actually looking at a piece of writing. So you know, saying that, I think one of the things an editor can do is to help the writer to become the best possible reviewer they can be, but without turning into uh, a parody of the best possible reviewers they think they are. Or a version of the editor. Absolutely, I mean, I yeah. I don't want this writer to write the review that I would have written. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, actually, I always used to feel that one of the big problems with the LRB was that it, there was a kind of a very strong editorial, too strong an editorial impression on it, if that makes sense. You know, sort of in the many, many years I've been reading the TLS as well, uh, there's only been one period when I knew actually who the editor of the TLS was, and and it wasn't a good time. I was, you know, it was actually quite happen, happy when we sort of the editor of the TLS sank back into obscurity and I'm focusing on the reviews again rather than somebody's vision um, of the TLS mentioning no names. I, I would agree that the TLS is a more transparent read than mm. the LRB can, although of course the LRB has recently had a change in editor and... yes. <clears throat> Mm. Anyway, we're not. We're, this is not the critical LRB friends uh, podcast, <laughs> although perhaps it should be. Although I believe that's the job for somebody else, to be honest. I mean, I, I would, I would comment upon, say, the reviewing in something like uh, Foundation, except that um, I'm not the reviews editor and I just do the copy editing. Uh, I mean, I think one of the interesting things, say, with something like Foundation, the journal, um, is that it gives a lot of space to younger, newer, you know, younger in terms of inexperienced reviewers and gives them a chance to strut their stuff. And it's very interesting you know, to watch the balance between I am writing an academic review and I am writing a review for an audience that is not entirely composed of academics. It's, it has to strike a very particular balance. Foundation has just changed reviews editors, so it's going to be interesting to actually see you know, what direction it goes in next. But I, I've always found it very interesting in the considerable time I've been doing the copy editing on that, how it gives you know, the, the spread of the reviewing. You know, between all those those different disparate groups of people. I think that raises something that I was thinking about 
in relation to this idea that you build up a relationship with a critic, with a body of work, mm. which is the one of the ways in which we can we can avoid that a kind of mode of reviewing or a kind of reviewer's persona becoming set in stone is to have a really wide um, range of new reviewers all the time, mm. which is obviously something we try to do. But also that that means that none of those individual reviewers is going to have that kind of body of work behind them. And so our relationship with them as critics is slightly different. I think that's a really good point. And I was thinking the same thing as Maureen was speaking. There is a, a danger in focusing on the relationship that a reader builds with a critic of falling back on the, the same people all the time. Mm. Um, and I think SFF reviewing can be a little open to that. I think certainly from my background in, in British SFF reviewing, um, it's a relatively small pool. So, and it takes effort to expand that pool. Um, and as Aisha says, we try to do that at, at SH, but uh, it's, it's always a, a constant job of work to do. But it's really valuable uh, because I do think that it doesn't just bring new reviewers in, it refreshes the old reviewers. And that seems to me really important. Yes. Um, I mean, actually, while we were saying that, I was just thinking of all the different ways that we are you know, looking. We acquire reviewers, let's put it that way. You know, and there's a certain amount that we are open recruiting uh, for reviewers. We're talent spotting people. Um, the people who come to us independently, some we turn down because and uh, others we take on because it's actually it's, it's a very, very complicated uh, process. I think more complicated necessary, you know, than people actually realise at times is trying to keep that flow of new people coming in and actually maintain you know, the regular stable of reviewers. Yeah, because as we all know, things change. People spend some time with us. They move on because other things are happening in their lives. And, you know, we're welcoming new people and regretfully saying goodbye to old people. But uh, I, I think I, one of the things I really like about the reviews department of Strange Horizons is the sort of, it is fantastically dynamic. The other thing, therefore, that I might ask is... In terms of neuro reviewers, perhaps. So we've we've talked about relationships uh, building over time. Newer reviewers, how did they establish that relationship immediately? Because it strikes me that we've been talking about a relationship over time, but each individual review, it seems to me, needs to establish. If not authority, I, I, I don't like that so much, Then, but some credibility with a reader. So, okay, a critic over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever, can be trusted. How does a new reviewer or even an old reviewer writing in a new venue instantly start to develop that? What is the sign of a review rather than a reviewer? that we can trust. The very act of accepting a review, editing it and putting it up on Strange Horizons, that's an act of trust. That is true. The... I don't feel embarrassed by this is the bare minimum that we're saying about <laughs> anything we put up, really. Yeah, I think we need a little more than that, though, don't we? <laughs> yeah, bare minimum. <laughs> I mean, actually, we need a fair bit more than that. OK, let, let's put it another way. When somebody comes to any one of us with 
uh, you know, we, we get somebody sending us in a new a review and we've not heard from them before. And we're looking at the reviews and thinking, you know, do we want to run with this? Do we like what this person is writing, even though we don't want them to review this particular thing? What is it then that actually sort of pings the button for us? I think I respond slightly differently depending on um, whether it's a pitch or whether it's an actual draft review. With a pitch, I'm looking for a consistent position. I'm looking for someone who knows where they stand in relation to a text, a film, whatever they're reviewing for us. When you've said, I want to write about this, Mm. I think the bare minimum is that, that you have a clear sense of where you are in relation to it. With an actual draft review, I think... I'm just looking for anything that gives me something I wouldn't have had before I started reading. I I think sometimes there's a moment where you just think, okay, I have an insight into, into this thing that I wouldn't have had if it hadn't been for this person. Even if it's not very polished or even if it's a bit lacking in direction, if there's an insight that that changes my relationship to the thing that's being reviewed or that opens something out for me, then the question becomes whether that insight is enough to put in any work that this review needs. Um, And sometimes, of course, the review doesn't need that much work and it's brilliant. But one of the nice things about working with a lot of new reviewers, I think, is that we get to do that, that we get to actually take someone who is not necessarily that confident about their work or not necessarily able to articulate some of these ideas and put in the time because we think that what they have to say Mm. is probably worth being out there. I always think the nicest part of that is I get a little note back and say, oh my goodness, this is amazing what you've done here. I think, well, actually, your person is amazing because you paid attention to what I said. And actually sort of, (laughs) no, seriously, you know, took it on on board. You know, I pointed you in certain directions that I thought would be productive, but you're the one who actually went away and did the hard work and turned what was an okay review into something that's a lot better. I think actually that's another thing I'm looking for um, when we get something like that is um, a willingness on the part of the writer, of the reviewer, to engage with the editorial process. Yeah, absolutely. Does this um, person actually want to make this as good as it can possibly be? Or yes, are they convinced that it's fine and publishable and that's it? I think we've all had people who you know, we sort of said, well, we'd like to do, you know, suggest you do this. And, no, absolutely, this isn't happening. And I thought, okay, fine, the review's not happening. Um, Never heard from them again. I used to get quite depressed by that, actually, but I realised it's a part of the part of the process, the circle of editing life. Yeah, you know, some people they were quite they're just they're just going to move on to somewhere that will take their their work immediately, and I'm quite happy that that we are not that place that we are actually going to have an editorial engagement with the um, the review in question. I mean, I, speaking as a reviewer, I love being edited because it happens oh, yeah, so definitely. rarely. You know, I I love the fact that when I'm reviewing, I, I get to hand over my work to you know, one of you two to uh, eviscerate it for me and uh, make it better because you know, I've been doing this for a long time but that doesn't mean I can't do it better if somebody actually looks at my work and gives me a view I mean again too that goes I think plays back into the the whole idea of trust as a reviewer I want to be able to trust a venue and I measure that trust in how willing they are to engage with what I give them and you know, sort of come back to me with editorial notes. Yeah, well, while you were both 
talking there, I was taking off actually my editor hat and putting on my reader hat and 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 thinking what I look for in a, a venue. So when I pick up a, a paper or open a website, I part of the trust thing isn't just for the individual reviewer. It is mm. for the venue. And it's because of that thing that you were just talking about, Maureen, which is some venues do feel to me less engaged in working up the product than others. And when I I go to a review, I kind of want it to have been pre-tested for me. So that I don't have to do all of the, the probing of the review. I can trust that a bit has been done already. Mm. And and that that trust is a significant part of of how I approach a piece and whether or how much I I pay heed to it. Does that is that am I off base? Does that seem fair? I think it's fair. I think that we don't necessarily want venues to have a house style to the extent that everything sounds the same, but we do want a, we do want a venue to have certain priorities and certain standards regarding those priorities that we share. I mean, there's there's an ethos w- which you tend to share with the um, the journals or the magazines that you that you care enough to pay attention to. And you want that ethos to be in play at some level in what they publish. And yes. I think also, so I was, I'm, I'm thinking now about, for instance, we haven't mentioned it yet, uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books, which mm. is a, a, a strange sort of curate's egg kind of place. <laughs> because uh, particularly perhaps a few years ago now, it, it did publish a lot of genre reviewing a lot of sff reviewing i i don't know whether it i've noticed it as much recently but that's still be, doing a fair amount yeah, yeah that may be my error what makes me think about that is that it is unusual for putting the the effort into sff in that way and sometimes in the non-sff press larb and other venues being notable and honorable exceptions sometimes the SFF is is not given that that weight. Quite the same level of, I mean, respect is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. I'm thinking of Maggie Clark's recent piece in the criticism special that SH did a few few weeks months ago. Well, if you remember, we did a book club on the um, Ishiguru's the, uh, the Buried Giant all those years ago because, as I remember, sort of the the, the, hot, the reason that particular book club came into being was the three of us exchanging frantic messages all morning when I finally got my hands on a copy of the Buried Giant and was able to fully express the outrage that had been brewing as I started reading the um, the reviews and it had become apparent to me already even before I got the book that um, several reviewers. Were were not um, really paying attention at all. They had completely got the wrong end of the stick. And, uh, and in one instance, they were very deliberately getting the wrong end of the stick to prove a point about fantasy, which mm-hmm. drove me absolutely nuts. Um, but I found it very interesting at that point to actually you know, sort of work through the comparison of all the different attitudes to a book like The Buried Giant. So yes. are we suggesting that one of the things that builds trust or at least doesn't undermine trust is a basic knowledge of context. I think I might be. Um, 
I mean, I wouldn't want to, you know, you you don't want a review to be written by somebody necessarily who is completely familiar with every aspect of an author's work or a particular um, literary context, because that kind of... That's another kind of limiting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it becomes a kind of echo chamber, doesn't it? But um, it's those reviews where you say, I've absolutely no idea what this book is about, yada, yada, yada. You think, well, why did you even bother reviewing it then? You know, so either you're not prepared to do the, the legwork to try and understand what's going on or just being, yeah, you're being incredibly lazy about this. You're, you're churning out an opinion, um, but it doesn't feel like a very well supported opinion. Yes. Yeah, so is there a difference between trusting a critic I mean, and agreeing? Actually, Here's a question. Where where does that point of agreement come? Because does this that agreement arise from reading what the critic has read? This is, this is another weird thing about sort of reviewing and critical writing. Are we actually going to read the books? Have we read the books that the critic has read? Yeah, because I mean, the number of things I read, I know I'm never actually going to read the book they're talking about, but I'm interested in what they're saying. So there's trust in the fact that I'm relying on them to report back in a, a sensible and timely fashion and an interesting fashion. And when it's a review of a text, there's also trust that they're giving us a kind of faithful account. Yes. Of that text. Of course, in the good old days, we would have then had the leisurely, but so-and-so is wrong about this correspondence in the in the letter pages of the uh, <laughs> journal. Whereas now this is sort of, as we were suggesting last time, this is played out of se- over several torrid hours on Twitter and then nobody ever hears anything about it ever again. Yeah, I was going to say, I suppose reviews don't exist in a vacuum, do they? So although last time we were talking about perhaps some of the deficiencies of the current ecosystem in in theory you should be able to check a particular review or a particular reviewer it strikes me that this is a really interesting conversation in the context of sf where we have on the one hand that um that regular conversation about the canon whether or not and to what degree people are expected to have read the canon assuming that such a thing exists um where i think most of the time we'd be on the side of saying no absolutely not you do not have to read the or a canon in order to engage with the genre in order to engage with specific Mm. texts in the genre but it's also a case of if not the canon you do need to be able to contextualize a book in something Yes. Well, it's, I, I mean, I tend to think of it as having a feel for what's going on in you know, SFF publishing at the moment. And because we can't all read everything, you know, it's impossible. There's too much being published. So as long as there is an awareness of being able to sort of, you know, situate oneself broadly within that, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. Because, you know, it's, it's always interesting to see people tackling something that they're not entirely familiar with. But um, I suppose it's there's a kind of distinction between a lack of sympathy, shall we say, and a lack of familiarity. And also an acknowledgement that books exist in multiple contexts. Mm, yes. That you may have a great deal of knowledge and sympathy with one aspect of a book and you may be encountering other things for the first time. And that can actually be really a really rich space in which to um, analyse a text. One of the things that strikes me um, is that the undercurrent here, the great unspoken, the implicit (laughs) assumption is that 
trust can be lost, that actually trust in the critic is fragile. And that, I mean, we've discussed a few things here. We've discussed a few reviewers and a, re a few reviewerly errors, which can almost immediately lose trust. So uh, you review that book and it's clear you don't know enough about it, or you spoil it without warning me, which is a whole other thing. And immediately, perhaps, the trust disappears. So you can build this up, this relationship, between reader and critic, but it's also quite a fragile thing, mm. is it? I'm very wary of trust as a concept um, when it comes to criticism because part of the point is, of course, that you want someone to be able to take you through their working, at least at some level. So they are actually showing you the process a little bit. So I can trust in individual reviews um, and I can feel a certain degree of, um, okay, this person is probably going to have a good position on this thing that they've they've written about. I was thinking, I, I suppose, how much should we rely on trust? As opposed to? Oh, well, there you find the weakness in my um, thought, Dan. Perhaps I just don't like committing myself either. It's a very incoherent thing. If you sort of get to the point where you trust someone, then that replaces... Or you trust someone's reviewing. Um, otherwise, we're going to get too broad with this. Uh, if you trust somebody's reviewing to the point where you don't actually stop to ask yourself, am I sort of just going into this blindly or do I need to actually stop and look at what is actually being said? Because I, I sort of occasionally worry or have worried in the past where I'm sort of wildly enthusiastic about somebody's writing, somebody's critical work. I sort of, yeah, you know, everything this person writes is completely brilliant and amazing. And then you sort of come to that point where you think, well, probably it is still completely brilliant and amazing, but I need to be a bit more critical about what I'm reading as well. There's a kind of interplay of trust and critical, the critical eye, I suppose, you know, how, how the two work together. Because even, you know, that which we love and admire, I think we do ourselves a disfavour if we don't keep testing it as well. So trust is essentially what we're trusting in is that this will stand up to scrutiny. But that can't mean that we don't scrutinise it. Exactly, yes. I think scrutiny is a good word, actually, in this. I love scrutiny. It's a great word. It's a lovely word, yes. I think it's a very important thing. Uh, I think generally, actually, scrutiny is a concept, you know, sort of a process that is actually much underrated in society. Things happen, people say things, but there should always be the people who are scrutinising what is going on. So I know we're only two episodes in, but can we change the title of the podcast to Scrutable Friends? <laughs> no. no, because that sounds really, really weird. <laughs> <laughs> listening to Critical Friends, the Strange Horizons SFF Criticism Podcast. Our theme music is Dial Up by Lost Cosmonauts. You can hear more of their music at grandvillies.bandcamp.com. See you next time. Mm -hmm.